the problem here is that recipes are abundant and just by making better pictures or better videos, you're not going to stand out in this red ocean of recipes. You need to do something dramatically different. And that's what we do, provide this interactivity that makes people stay for longer and actually do not bounce, but spend time and actual activity. And what you get back as a brand or a retailer is obviously engagement is powerful in itself. But the most important reason why you need to have recipes on your site is you want to understand and you want to connect with your customers. Well, hello there. This is Milena and welcome to another episode of Retail Mavericks podcast. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hivery, a pioneer of hyperlocal retailing. Our guest today is Michael Haas, the CEO and founder of Plan Jammer, with previous work experience in management consulting at McKinsey & Company and investment banking at Merrill Lynch. So without any further ado, we'll jump right in into Michael sharing with us what inspired him to start Plan Jammer, what it is and the reasoning behind the name. So basically, even within McKinsey, you have this mindset of focusing on impact. Where can I have the most effect of, of the hours that I spend at work? And it just occurred to me that in other jobs, I was doing something that someone else could also do if I stepped out. <laughs> Whereas if I started my own, I could really make something that no one else would have created without me. And that excited me. And, and I felt that it, within food, there's really some change that needed to happen. The way our food culture works, basically we cook less than 10 different recipes per year uh, on average. And for that reason, we are having a lot of food waste. We're not eating exactly the things that's good for us or for the planet. And I thought it was a great potential to make a change there. They have this great expression in India that goes, uh, the economy grows at night when the government is sleeping. <laughs> and it's sort of the same with sustainability, where within food, we can really do something ourselves without any government or big company intervention, we can do something with our habits. So I started Plant Jammer. And the reason why it's called Plant Jammer is because we're focusing on uh, two particular aspects. One is we're focusing on making the, the food chain more plant-based by empowering people at, at, at cooking with, with more plant-based foods. We also have animal-based products, but we're really focusing on that switch. And then we want to make it not like a perfectionist rule that you have to stick to some very high-level recipe, but rather the other part of the word jammer. We rather have that cooking is like jam session for a jazz band, where you have notes, so you know you're going to do it right. But when you have those notes, you can you can freestyle. And once you have that sort of free wheeling with some rules, you can really make matching in the, in the kitchen without it feeling like a performance theater. We have a life, all of us, where... Most of the stuff we do is recorded on social media and, uh, and everything has to be perfect, right? And actually the kitchen is one of those places where we could jam and we can be a bit more freestyle and let go. It's not that dangerous. It's not that easy to mess things up in the kitchen, actually, if you know a few rules. So the jammer mindset in the kitchen is really something I'm a proponent for. So Michael, who are your target users and how does your solution work? Yes, absolutely. So the solution we provide is it's to food brands and to retailers to help them get better recipe experiences on their websites. So we build a whole modular technology that makes recipes adaptable and personalizable. That means that the end user can go in on your website, if you're a food brand or retailer, and with the help of our one line of code, they have a recipe experience where they adapt recipes to them personally. They find a recipe, they make it vegan, they say, what can I do to make it more Mexican or more Mediterranean, make it more creamy, more spicy, substitute a few ingredients, get spice pairing, all these aspects where you're in control as an end user. And if you're a food brand or retailer, you get this on your site, 
obviously focused on your particular food products, but it gives your end users this freedom to really sort of jam. And that way they get something completely new than your average recipe site. And the reason that why that's important is because recipes in general tend to be good at attracting people, but not very good at engaging people on your websites. So if we can make something different that gets people engaged and personalized, suddenly we can get all that traffic to create real connection between customers and brands and retailers. And that's what we do. Michael, can you elaborate more on the one line of code and what technologies and capabilities are behind your solution? We just start at the application level. So as a uh, food brand or retailer, it's called an iframe. It's one line of code of HTML you put on your site. It links to our servers and then suddenly you have the recipe experience there. So it's very easy to implement and then you have the whole experience. Now that unbundles a bunch of technology we built to build this recipe experience. What we did on our side is we actually do not have a simple database of recipes. Rather, we taught an AI how to cook. We gave an artificial intelligence a bunch of recipes, food pairings, uh, taught it about what ingredients go well together, taught it about what is umami, sour, sweet, all the aspects of balancing a recipe. And then it knows the food pairing on top and knows the kind of dishes you can make. And with that, it gives this flexibility into it that you can adapt the recipes. So we basically have a combination of a neural network that understands food pairing. Chefs have spent a lot of time building base dishes that you can adapt and give some like straight jackets to the AI to use the food pairing within. So that even if it finds couscous to go well on a pizza, we're not going to allow that because there's going to be chefs who gave some rules. And the combination of that, really the AI and the chef intelligence combined is what's in our servers and is provided via this one line of code on your website. So there's a few things. First thing that's important is a general neural network for food pairing. Basically, from millions of recipes, we taught an AI what ingredients go well together by just finding patterns and giving parameters on what ingredients tend to go together. That's the first layer of what we have. Then we need a straitjacket on top of that of saying, okay, actually, we see patterns in what the neural network showed us in terms of food pairing. We did a lot of labeling of ingredients based on what we saw and realized that there's one ongoing pattern that is everywhere when you look at food pairing, and that is the, the balances of flavor. It tends to be that uh, you know once you have something sour and sweet, then the next thing that the neural network will look for is something oily, and then we'll look for something umami, and then we'll look for something crunchy. And there are eight different components like this we go through. So we learned that that actually is powerful, and that's actually a learning experience to realize. We adapted all ingredients with those tags and where do they fit into those flavors, and then actually ask the neural network to go through those flavors one at a time. Because that way we don't just have a black box of a neural network, we also have a language around it that people can be guided around. If you download the Plant Jammer app, then you'll see something called the gastro wheel that basically goes through these components one at a time, visually teaching people what are the balances. That's the second part. The third part is now you've picked good ingredients and you have to put it into a context or a particular recipe. And we worked a lot with uh, the American chef, Mark Bittman, who used to say that there's only 10 recipes in the world <laughs> and everything is a branch out of those 10 core recipes. We find this more like 400 <laughs> and we made those. An example being a risotto. You always do the same six steps in a risotto, but you can make millions of different kinds of risottos based on your ingredients. So we build these frameworks around how do you put them together when you make, for instance, a risotto? What are the good steps to always have in a risotto? And we do that for 400 different dish types which becomes billions of different recipes at the end, depending on your choice of ingredients. It's combining those two technologies that we then build another neural network, which has 
based on just like the Netflix algorithm that says people like you tend to like this and you haven't seen it yet. There's a similar thing with recipes where we can see based on your choice of ingredients, the ingredients that are available in a particular dish type, and people like you most likely to be recommended now. So with the Netflix example, do you need to collect users' personal data at PlanJammer to be able to provide such recommendations? What's important for us is that we don't really collect personal data. We keep these things uh, separate. So, And then the other part is just looking at patterns of ingredients and patterns of dishes that you pick. We just put you into a cluster. For that reason, we don't hold the personal data, but that doesn't change the fact that we get requests almost daily by people who want us to delete their data, even though we don't have their data. We have to say that back that actually we don't have your data. We have email, we can delete that right away and we do that. But we don't connect that with other aspects uh, for what's called GDPR reasons here in the EU. We're very careful about this, but we've also set up a system whereby this is never an issue. What pain points is PlanJammer trying to address? Why do conventional recipes not work? The simple pain point is if you just look at the metrics on your own website, your brand or retailer on your recipes. Recipes tend to have a what's called a bounce rate of more than 40%. That means that almost half of the people who go see a recipe, they never click anything on the recipe and they just go out again. So you lost that traffic and it was completely irrelevant for you. On top of that, even the people who get to click, they spend less than two and a half minutes on that recipe. That means they never cooked it. The problem here is that recipes are abundant and just by making better pictures or better videos, you're not going to stand out in this red ocean of recipes. You need to do something dramatically different. And that's what we do, provide this interactivity that makes people stay for longer and actually not bounce, but spend time and actual activity. And what you get back as a brand or retailer is obvious engagement is powerful in itself. But the most important reason why you need to have recipes on your site is you want to understand and you want to connect with your customers. And that's exactly what this empowers because... Think of it, an end user goes here and clicks 20 different things to substitute ingredients, show that it's vegan, get it Mexican. That's data on your kind of customers, what they like, what they actually cook, and also what they don't like, so what they substituted out. And that's a data dashboard we give back to our customers once a month where they get to understand their customers better. We don't hold the personal data, you hold that, but we have a general data layer that tells you your customers look like this and this is what they like and not like, which guides you in doing better marketing, better category management, yeah, even be doing new product development based on these insights. If you do some research on millennials in particular and their cooking habits, Google did a really good study on this. They realized that the biggest pain point when it comes to cooking for people, it's not the cooking itself, it's the discovery of what should I cook. It's the meal planning aspect, whether it's just one recipe or many. That's the pain that we want to solve for. And that you cannot just do with one beautiful recipe. It has to be a journey around finding it, whether it is search or it is adaptation of the recipe to you personally. And that's a space where we are actually quite alone, not many competitors in the space. And, and that's actually a problem for us because we have to communicate our technology a lot because we cannot just say, oh, we are like those guys plus uh, this feature. Eventually, there's got to be many, but right now we are, we're quite alone. So, Michael, you have talked about personalization capabilities of PlanJammer. Does PlanJammer also have localization capabilities? In other words, some ingredients may not be available or popular in some countries. How do you solve for that? First of all, there are some patterns that are recurring across gastronomy. So whether you're in Japan, Mexico or uh, Colorado, 
you have certain balances of flavor that's just a human nature. We want something that has a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of sour, a little bit of mommy, a little bit of crunch, really creating those balances. So that's a common thing. But then the ingredients that create those flavors are different from region to region. And therefore, we have a big database of recipes that covers the whole space, and we're adding more as we learn more. Uh, but then we, on top of that, put what we call masks, which based on the region that you're in, certain ingredients are going to go out and certain ingredients are going to be prioritized higher. We even guide the AI a little bit of saying, uh, it might be great to have tapioca in this dish, but only propose its resilience. And that way we can make sure that it's localized also on the gastronomical level. Out of curiosity, can you give us an example of a controversial food or ingredient pairing you have learned from your technology? Banana and zucchini, actually. Uh, banana and avocado as well. But banana and zucchini is a, it's a very controversial one that we learned from the food pairing technology. Hmm, interesting. I will look into that. On another note, what was the decision behind integrating artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms and technology into your solution? I wanted to learn how to cook. <laughs> Working at McKinsey 89 hours a week, it didn't give me much time for that. I needed at some point to get that skill. And that happened before I started the company. I started looking into how do I learn how to cook. And the first thing that sort of occurred was exactly these recipes that are static and built by some authority that would have to follow. And I didn't really appreciate that journey of having to you know, meticulously follow someone else's step. I wanted sort of a layer above that of why or learnings. Stumble into the whole space of food pairing, which is something cleaner where you basically just say, I have one ingredient, what goes well with it? And that journey was something that I enjoyed. So I started looking into food pairing and really wanted to have a product that just told me what goes well together. And after a while, realized there's books written about this, but there's no real sort of good product that helps me in this direction. And then I just started looking into how could one get a good food pairing data set? Starting off with just building up an Excel sheet of a bunch of uh, food pairings I found in books and got me only so far. Then started talking to a few data scientists and realized that actually this is a perfect topic for, for AI, particularly for neural networks. Because what you have is abundance of data out there. There's so much data on recipes. The data is available on what ingredients tend to go together out there. We just need to be able to capture all those data learnings in a few metrics. And that's exactly what neural networks are good at. They find patterns and they can take all that data and put it down to a number between two ingredients. So it basically was starting with the problem and realizing that a neural networks was the right way to go there. And that's basically how we built the product throughout is stumbling on user problems and then finding the technology to solve it rather than starting with the technology. Michael, I'd love to hear more about how PlanJammer's solution has evolved over the last five years. I think the, the first point here is that when we describe our product, we try actually not to describe it very diligently at times, so not very specifically, because then we ask the person we talk to, how would you describe this? And then we learn that they actually uncover their needs by trying to describe our product because we always project our problems to other people's products. And that helped us tremendously. That's the reason why we are focusing a lot on empty your fridge, meaning stopping food waste by cooking with what you have in your fridge right now. And that's the major sort of use case that is propelling our technology, you could say. It's exactly this because again and again throughout the last five years when we described our technology, people would say, oh, then I can empty my fridge. And then we said, okay, yes, I guess you can. Let's use it that way then. <laughs> so it really is that way of not trying to pull down your use case on people, but describe 
your use case very broadly and then hear how people reflect on it and then build a product based on the use need that they come up with, basically. You got to be adaptive and not just stick to your guns and your own user story if you realize another one is the powerful one. So how can individuals like me and you try Plan Jammer? It's free to use. You have the first, uh, there's like these 10 core recipes, the, the ones that Mark Bittman says are the only ones in the world. They are in the top of the app that are there free. And you can build those and adapt those and personalize those as much as you want forever. But you then want to go beyond the 10 and start making something a bit more complicated or you want to work, use the meal planning aspects or the um, empty your fridge aspects of the app. Then there is a payment of $4 a month for that aspect. So that's for the people who want to go, go beyond the 10. Yeah, so that's a, a place to try the technology out with your own fingers. Similarly, how can food brands and retailers familiarize themselves with your solution? Yeah, you can just go to plantjammer.com. There's a little white paper describing the problem with recipes as they are today, as we also talked about now. And there's a link to our product as well, where you can try it out. And you can also get a free trial. We have a seven-day free trial and can expand that to 30 days where you can either just get the link, put it on your page and see how it works or put it up on Instagram or Facebook stories and do that for a week or an, or even a month. And then we'll provide the data after that month and show you that it works. And if it does, then you can go on subscription. It's ridiculously cheap. A small brand is $200 a month. To get this on your site, have a whole recipe experience on your site. And if your big brand is a thousand euros a month. So it's uh, relative to the fact that food brands tend to spend between one and 3,000 euros in creating one recipe. It's quite a bargain. But you can get it for free for 30 days. Try it out. See the data and see if it works for you. Michael, I'm sure you've heard this one before, but there are lots of free recipes out there. Why should individuals use your solution? If you accept the hypothesis that, that it's the discovery of the recipe that's hard, not the recipe cooking itself, then you realize how useless paper is in this context because you really need that interactivity of saying, okay, I have broccoli and pomegranate, and by the way, I want to eat gluten-free, and can you make it spicy? Suddenly you get into trouble if you have to find that on paper. right? To solve the real problem of discovery, we need to go digital. And there's a journey for how we do that best, whether it's going to be speech, big screens, small screens, AR. It can be many different approaches to technology to get there. But I do believe that the digital approach to recipes is going to win. Yeah, sure. We still have paper playing a role because we want to be physical in the kitchen. And I respect that. And we want to get rid of our phones as much as we can. But there's just something super powerful about the discovery search if you get the right technologies into recipes. We just have to find the balance where you both get the discovery aspect digitally, but you don't feel like the phone is invading your kitchen. And for that reason, we have that challenge. And that's why speech is going to play a central role in, in this adaptation too. Can a food brand integrate their new product into your solution? Yeah, that's actually a beautiful case for us because we have these modular recipes. It's super easy. So we have underneath each ingredient in our database, we have a product hierarchy, which means under soy sauce, there's uh, 5,000 different products and so on. So that means we can add a product if it's under an existing ingredient. If it's really novel, then we can create a new ingredient. And then we make the best match of that ingredient to an existing one. And suddenly you have thousands of recipes for your product. So it really is a few clicks and you're in its present because of the modularity of our technology. So you will not need to create a whole new recipe bank once you create a new product or new ingredient. You can talk to us and then we can find it in the neural network. 
We can adapt it to existing comparable ingredients, get a few guidances on the cooking, put that into the framework, and boom, there's, uh, there's thousands of recipes. How does Plan Jammer determine which brand of a product is displayed in the recipe? It wholly depends on where you found that recipe. If you're on Kikoman's homepage, you're going to get Kikoman soy sauce. If you're on a retailer site, they're going to show the products that they prioritize, probably based on category management. So it's basically a marketing choice, which products they want to show. Also based on the filters that the user have used, if they want to have something organic, gluten-free, then it's going to be certain soy sauces that are available. We've touched on this question a little earlier with the involvement of certain features of Plan Jammer. Can you elaborate more on the story behind the involvement of the startup? What were the early stages like? What challenges did you face? What helped you overcome them? And maybe any changes in the direction that you have taken? In the beginning, it was just getting confirmation or rejection of our hypothesis. So could we create something here that people actually wanted? That was the most important part. And we just used to find the cheapest way possible to make that test. In the beginning, as I mentioned, I just made Excel sheets of food pairings and paid $5,000 on Upwork to get a guy in Bangladesh to build a WordPress site where you could do some of the stuff I wanted to do. And that got us to confirmation, get a few thousand people to use and be excited about it enough that we could then get investors and get actual programmers in the team. And that was stage one setting up the team and getting enough validation that we could, with conviction, get funding and start building something. And then we went down a journey of starting with the simplest possible products, just food pairing, really, just saying what goes well with what, and that's it. And then listening to customers. What are the things we have do you not want? And what is the next thing you want? And then adding that on top of the product and, and on that journey, just learning the needs. Um, we spent two, three years just doing that, just trying to get that product right. And in that journey, we started talking to retailers and brands and realized that actually they have tremendous challenges with recipes. And that's what made the pivot that we did just one year ago where we said, okay, actually, we should divert all our efforts into B2B, going away from the app and focus on the products that are going on retailer and brand sites. And that's what we're spending all that time on now. So now we are 20 people just focusing on that challenge. And again, the reason for that challenge is because it's more scalable. This is a place where we could actually fathom reaching a billion people which is impossible to do with one app in food because we all have our own religions and ideas about food. So one app to touch that many people in food, I don't believe is possible. That was the reason why we said we have to go B2B and distribute our technology broadly on other people's websites with a business model around it that makes it scalable. And that's what we've been spending our last year on building for that reason. We often talk just about our successes, but are there any features that you have developed but then decided to kill? And what was the reason behind that? The most common one that we still keep on getting as a request, but uh, we know it won't work, is uh, having a pantry in your app. People, they can keep a hold on all the things I have in my fridge or some of the things I have in their fridge and perhaps also with the spices and oils. And then they just click a button and they get a recipe. This is quite easy for us to solve technically. The problem with that user use case that everyone talks about and find exciting is that once you live it, you realize how hard it is. It's very easy to type in the things you have in your fridge and you have in your spice cabinet. The problem is getting stuff out the moment that you used your carrots and there's none of it left. They also have to go to the app and actually register that. No one does that. And for that reason, basically that's a feature in an app or in a website that will only give people bad conscience about the fact that they're not keeping it up to date. It's a feature that makes so much sense. Everyone is requesting it. 
It's relatively easy to build within our technology, but when the rubber hits the road, it's a counterintuitive part of the journey, which is that getting the ingredient out of the app that actually holds people back from getting the most of it. And it even gives them bad conscience about it, that they're not keeping up to date. So it's really a detractor of value in this case. That's probably a good example of a feature that we had to kill after testing a lot. Michael, with the increase in e-commerce and online grocery shopping, does PlanJammer have capabilities to talk directly to the retailer's apps, simplifying the consumer journey? We're going in the direction, not quite in the kind of user journey you just told me. It's the moment you use the carrots, you want to eat, buy more carrots. Rather, who start doing more online shopping, start doing more is meal planning, meaning that they plan or would at least like to plan for five meals or at least three for the week. That's an aspect our technology can solve and will solve. So we're working with finding one retailer per region we partner with, both food brands and on the retailer sites themselves give a meal plan experience where you personalize a meal plan. You're choosing your settings. How many people am I? Do I have children? Am I vegan? Do I like Mexican food, Thai food? Are there ingredients I don't like? And then we create a meal plan that you can adapt and then click shop. And then it actually goes straight to the shopping basket in the online retailer we partner with. When it comes to PlanJammer geographical presence, which countries is it available in and what's your main geographical focus going forward? We do well in Europe. We have biggest presence in Germany, uh, the UK, Spain and France. And then in the, some, of, some of the small countries like Denmark, where I'm from, and, and Sweden. We are just about to enter. We have five different clients in the US as well. So that's an interesting space. And we would like to generally spend much more of our energy in the English-speaking parts of the world. We have a good translation mechanism that makes this available in many languages. And that means we are quite strong in small countries where recipes are less available and hence we can really make a difference. But in the English-speaking, we actually have the best recipes. New Zealand, Australia, UK, US. Those are places that make a ton of sense. Canada ton of sense to spend more of our energy on. Is it time and resources consuming to translate recipes to different languages? Because the recipes are modular, we actually have a lot of strings of text that are repetitive. So you're cutting your tomatoes the same way, whether you may use it for a pasta or you're using it for a salad. So for that reason, we can actually reuse a lot of the strings of text and we do that. And that means it's quite easy to translate this to small languages. It's a matter of two or three days of a translator, and then we have everything in a new language. And for that reason, we have presence in anything from Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, to Czech Republic, to Sweden and Norway. Small countries are super accessible for us, and it's something that we don't keep away from. They tend to get requests for it, so it's a direction we're going, and it's it's not nearly as big concern for us to localize as it is if we had a recipe database that was more classical. It's a quite easy journey to go down. What is the end goal you're pursuing with PlanJammer, and how far along are you in achieving this goal? At the highest level, I started off Plan Jammer saying we want to touch the way a billion people eat. And that means we want to have a billion people who don't necessarily use our products on a daily basis, but they've learned something by using our products. They're acting differently in the kitchen because of this. And particularly what they're doing is they're cutting down their meat consumption and they're cutting down their food waste. That's the vision. Getting a billion people to change behavior in the kitchen. That's the highest level of change. Now, how do we get there? We started off with the app, which is a B2C, direct-to-consumer product, but realized that the best way to reach a lot of people is if we partner up with brands and retailers who already have their reach. 
And that's one reason why we build these products that are available on other people's sites. It's distribution of our technology so that we can really get that impact that we all want to have on creating a more sustainable food chain at scale via partners. We're just about to add another product based on shoppable meal plans. So that, that users, they type in a few settings and then they get a meal plan that they can adapt perfect personalization and then get delivered to their home via their favorite local retailer. So we're partnering with retailers and food brands for that journey as well. Building a bunch of products based on our technology that enables that overarching vision of getting people to cook more sustainably, more healthy on a regular basis. We do want to touch a billion people, so we need to make this technology readily available. We right now have a little bit more than a million downloads, 1.5 million downloads in our app. On a weekly basis, we're touching around 1.5 million people cooking. We still have to multiply that by a thousand. And what's important is that we don't get infatuated by the big numbers, but that we just succeed with one company at a time. And that's really the purpose right now is, can we get a hundred really happy food brands and retailers who love what we do and want to spread the word about us? That's much more important. And even before the 100, we want to have 10. Currently, we have 30, 30 customers and they're happy. We want to make them ecstatic. And if we can make 10 of those ambassadors that talk about us left, right, and center, then we have the product that we want to have. We are spending most of our time on product, making sure that it's the best possible. And with the customers, the end customer, we make sure they're happy about what they get and we adapt it right. We don't get too infatuated with 1 billion. We just focus on get, making a great product for very few. That's what scales at the end of the day. But right now, it's about doing stuff that doesn't scale. And it's about getting a really, really awesome experience for people that really help people in their homes. And then the 1 billion will follow. Thanks to exponential growth, we do grow by around 20% every month. So uh, if that continues, then we're not that many years away. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of my questions. Certainly, there were a lot of them. But I'm sure that there is something that you wish people would ask you more often. What is that question? <laughs> Good one. I think uh, one thing is why focus on food waste in the home? Because that's what we're doing, right? We're focusing on empowering people to empty their fridge, use what they have. Why is that important? And the answer is basically that of all the food waste across the food chain, 44% of it is happening in the home. That's why we can make the real scalable impact on food waste. We also do have a product that's focused on stopping food waste in the store, where we're enabling the stores to identify products that are close to expiry and then put them in the stop food waste experience on their website. So they're empowering people to go to the store and find it. But the bulk of food waste is still in the home. So it really is the problem, but also the solution lies in the hand of the customer. Thank you for listening until the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to learn more about PlanJammer, navigate to planjammer.com or download the app. If you want to learn more about Hivery products and what Hivery does to change the way retailers do business today, navigate to hivery.com to learn more. And if you liked this podcast, I highly encourage you to check out other Retail Mavericks podcasts. Stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.